Hello, and welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday, and this is the final episode in our season on science advice and government, produced in partnership with Expertise Under Pressure, a project of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. Today we're talking about how science advice has been used in the UK's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and what lessons can be learned to help prepare for future pandemics. We hope this will be a space for learning and reflecting ahead of the UK's public inquiry, which will look into these matters. So today I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Sharon Peacock, who's Director of the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, and also Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at the University of Cambridge. And also Professor James Wood, who's Head of the Vet School at Cambridge and a specialist in infectious disease dynamics. Welcome to you both. So Sharon, if I may start with you, and ask you what contribution the COG UK, the COVID-19 Genomics Consortium, has played in understanding the disease and how has that understanding helped tackle the pandemic? Yeah, thank you. Well, back in March 2020, you know, we were very, very early on in the pandemic. And at that point, people who study kind of evolutionary biology we were pretty clear that, that the virus causing the pandemic was likely to evolve over time. And inevitably, a virus will, through natural selection, be selected out to be fitter than, than kind of the previous versions. And so when SARS-CoV-2 emerged, we wanted to start to sequence the virus so that we could track how it was evolving. So back in March 2020, we got together a group of people to create COG-UK. Now, there were 21 different partners. That's the four public health agencies of the United Kingdom, the Wellcome Sanger Institute, and 16 academic partners. And we were all really well-versed in how to sequence pathogens. We already knew how to do that. We had instruments in our laboratories to be able to do that. So what we really did in COG UK was to provide the glue to bring everybody together to start sequencing the SARS-CoV-2 virus back in March 2020. Now, the point of doing that really was to provide the information to the public health agencies and to scientists so they could start to track to see how the virus was changing over time. And in particular, we, we were concerned about whether the virus would become more transmissible or avoid the immune system or become more virulent. So what is it that you're actually tracking? Where, where are the samples coming from? So the samples are spent material after people with COVID-19 have had a PCR test. So we've all become familiar with the idea of a PCR test. And in that sample is the residual virus, it's an RNA virus. And what we do is we sequence the material from that sample. So it comes from people, but actually what you have to do is get that sample from uh, the patient to our sequencing lab. So we created a network so people who were being tested in the lighthouse labs or in hospitals, their samples flowed into one of sort of 16 or 17 sequencing labs. And then the sequence data fed into kind of a central database. Now, what we're looking for in particular is like typos in the genome. So the RNA virus has 30,000 bases in, it, in its genome. And any one of those can be, could have like a typo. So it's not re reproduced uh, reliably. Now, if that happens, like a mutation occurs, then that's what we want to pick up. Uh, it, and over time, the virus has a mutation rate of around one or two mutations a month as it passes from one person to another. And we're looking for those mutations, we're tracking that. And in particular, 
looking at whether those mutations lead to a change in the way, change of the biology, the way that it, it interacts with humans. And are these samples, so is COG-UK tracking the virus in the UK, as the name suggests? Yes. So we tracked the virus in the UK by two approaches. One was to do targeted sequencing. So we were interested in a virus being introduced into the country or the virus from people who've, who've failed with the vaccination, so they get infection after being vaccinated, uh, looking at sequencing of, of sort of sudden expansions of disease, so it, unexpected surges in disease. So that was kind of very targeted. But we also sequenced in a very unbiased way because we wanted to know in addition uh, to things like outbreaks, what else was happening in the community. So we would have a two-pronged approach where we'd also sequence virus that was really picked at random from the population to see what variants were infecting people across the country. And the UK was and has maintained quite a sort of globally important position in, in its capacity to sequence COVID. How has the UK's work been sort of connected to international efforts? You're quite right that it, it was important. We were quite early out of the starting box in terms of sequencing. And everything we did, including the sequence data and all of our methods and our protocols for sequencing and our analysis tools were put into open access so anyone could use them. And I know that the genomes that we generated, we put into a database called uh, Gizaid, which is a global database. I know that that helped other people understand what was circulating at the time, because what is circulating in the UK is rapidly circulating elsewhere and vice versa. You know, it's very porous as to what you what you have circulating. And so we put that into the global database so that everybody could share in the understanding. And there was a point in time when the UK genomes were around 50% of the total global genomes. Now, I'm glad to say that that's no longer the case because other people are sequencing a great deal more over time. But yes, the genomes that we generated in the UK did play an important role in the global response and global understanding of, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And now to be sort of specific, what value does understanding the genome and the, the changing genome of the virus, what what value does that add to you know, a country's response to the pandemic? How is it useful to know this genetic sequence? Well, what sequencing does is it allows us to categorise the virus into different groups, if you like, or variants. And in particular, when a variant of concern emerges that we're concerned may have different characteristics, then you need to know whether a group of people are infected, what variant they're infected with. That's kind of like the baseline, because then layered on top of that, you can say, well, if people are infected with variant A or variant B, um, are they more likely to go into hospital or become severely ill or die? Is there a greater ability for a particular variant to avoid the immune system, either from previous infection or from vaccination? And is a variant more transmissible? So it's like kind of the baseline of categorization of, of the variants that are circulating, which you layer on top of that, that information about the epidemiology, whether a particular variant is spreading more quickly, and then also all of the biology that needs to follow, all of the virology and the assays that are done to look at how a particular variant behaves in the laboratory and, and so on. It's like the very first point of information. And I would say, actually, that the very first genome that was released uh, way back at the beginning of the pandemic was generated by Chinese investigators. And it was that really that the vaccine developers used to really understand the virus, the fact that it was a, um, you know, a coronavirus and that uh, their vaccine development around the spike protein 
was very much informed by that first genome. One thing that we've learned through the pandemic, for those of us who aren't infectious disease experts, is that surveillance is very important. This idea of testing, tracking, tracing is, is a sort of integral part of any response to a novel disease and a pandemic. Of course, there's many, many other aspects to, to a, a successful response. But if, if we focus on the kind of surveillance side of things, Sharon, what lessons do you think we can draw from what's worked and what's worked less well so that a country like the UK could be better prepared for future pandemics? What would you highlight from your work over the last two years? Well, I would go to the point before sequencing, actually, and that is to testing. And so if we were to learn about what we've been through in the last two years in the UK, I would say that we need to have a very resilient testing programme. Now, having to develop a testing programme in the UK that could do millions of tests every day feels quite unprecedented. But having observed that that's what we needed to do to increase our testing in order to test people in the community, we need to be, be thinking now about how, as the pandemic begins to subside and testing is required less, how do we get into a position where we can actually expand or contract our testing so that we do capture what we need to? So I think it would be a huge concern if we were to go back to a point where we were doing very, very lower level surveillance testing, unless we could really surge very rapidly back up again. So, you know, we've, we've, got, we've had incredible testing capabilities developed during the pandemic. And thinking about how they can be preserved so that our capability doesn't decay away is going to be vital for me. I think the other area around surveillance is data linkage. So it sounds quite a dry subject, but unless you can actually connect together information about the patient with their samples and, and all of the other information you'd want to collect on them, it makes effective surveillance very difficult and and it's both the quality and quantity of the data but also the speed at which it can be aggregated together and so at the beginning of the pandemic i think that data linkage and the generation of, of data that would would create very effective and rapid surveillance was actually perhaps not where it needed to be and, and how we saw that grow over time i think preserving that ability to do rapid surveillance and data linkage is going to be key for any future pandemic. I mean, it's interesting just thinking about having that standing capacity to test and the data linkage. It, it reminds me that I've heard some infectious disease people talk about peacetime and wartime and how to transition between kind of peacetime to wartime. And the language of war obviously does also raise alarms because we know that during wars, during emergencies, uh, sometimes civil liberties are sort of eroded and people worry about being in a state of emergency where you know privacy is, is, is less respected. How do you think about sort of managing that balance over time? Well, pandemics aren't a war. They're not a war. People are able to actually decide for themselves, make choices about, about in a way that you couldn't during a war. I wouldn't, I don't think it's necessarily useful to equate a, a pandemic to a war. And I think the other thing is that often you can't prepare for what you might face in a war. I think you can prepare for what's going to happen in a pandemic. We can learn a great deal. So in many ways, there's lessons to be learned from uh, you know, preparations for war. But I think that, that looking at preparations for the pandemic and rerunning the whole cycle of what would it have been ideal to have in our, in our cupboards if this happened again, 
And I, I think that ensuring that we have capacity for surge testing, you know, for example, you know, enough ventilators and, and PPE and so on. I think that's all within our capability within pandemic preparedness itself. James, you know, I do want to come back to quite a few of the, the things that Sharon's raised, but I wonder if you could talk from your perspective of how should we collectively in the UK be thinking about the risks of future pandemics? Apart from making the obvious point that that's the pandemic is still ongoing and it's very unclear what the end of circulation of this virus or its variants is going to be, I think we need to think very carefully about how it arose in the first place. And, and I think that if you just think about risk, you might say, well, we've had our one in a hundred years event. You know, it's, it was Spanish flu a hundred years ago and almost exactly. And so we can relax for another 98 years now because we're two, two years into this. I think, unfortunately, all of the factors that have predisposed towards this epidemic being more likely are still in place. And so actually the likelihood of us suffering a repeat event where all of the measures that public health measures might be needed again around the world actually is more likely than it was five years ago. So, I, I, and I don't think that, that we are thinking enough about mitigating the risks of, uh, of another infection arising just from animals, let alone other ways that um, pandemics can arise. So I think that we are still trading live animals, live wild animals in mixed very suboptimal conditions across borders and over long distances around the world. And these sorts of things make mixing of viruses between species very likely. And these animals are also in close contact with people. So if something does arise, a recombinant new virus arises because you've mixed up two viruses that come from different species, then those people are there ready to catch it with no prior immunity, because this will be an infection perhaps that has never or has very infrequently come into humans uh, before. So I think that I would be much more worried about a new pandemic now than I was five years ago, because I think that we've done nothing to address the primary causes while wanting to actively avoid discussion about whether this was a laboratory leak or a natural virus. I think I would say that this was very clearly a natural virus. We still don't know how it got into the human population. Um, but the point is, it's a natural virus that has met humans. And if we only focus on tightening up laboratory biosecurity, we will miss all of these other predisposing factors around live animal trade and, uh, and biodiversity loss that puts more and more people into close contact with the sort of species that might be carrying pandemic viruses. And those are the things that we need to be trying to think about globally, not just in the UK. So just to take those two points and just ask you, you know, what you would recommend as sort of next steps to make progress. So you talked about biodiversity loss and, and then you talked about trade in live animals. But take the biodiversity loss. Explain how reducing biodiversity loss, is that really going to make much of a difference to the kinds of threats we see from pandemics? Of course, you know, there are very good reasons to preserve biodiversity, but is to what extent is really reducing the risk of pandemic a factor? In the short term, that's a very hard thing. to. It's a very hard thing to try and do. But we, whatever happens, we need to try and halt the ongoing decline, global decline of biodiversity loss in the first instance. Um, by supporting the people that live in biodiverse areas already to sustain the biodiversity in those spots without thinking about extractive industries, which is still decimating many of the world's most biodiverse areas. So I think supporting the people that live there already is a key point. 
And what's the mechanism? Why will preserving biodiversity reduce the risks of pandemics? The mechanisms are quite complex, but if we have a a relatively biodiverse ecosystem that people are living in, the species that live there are less likely to be ones that carry very large numbers of zoonotic infections. Now, Now, the research is clear on that, but there are a lot of unanswered questions around the details of it. But I think what is clear in the way there's a consensus around those working in this area is that the preservation of biodiversity is a very good thing for the world. And so I think it's something that that there's enough evidence that we should be doing things around that. And perhaps part of the, the biodiversity preservation and is reducing extractive industries. Now, extractive industries can include, as well as logging, mining, Um, industrial scale agriculture. Also industrial scale hunting is something that we should be avoiding, particularly where we are removing large numbers of wildlife species alive from areas, carrying them over large distances into markets where they mix with many other animals. That is quite distinct from local extractive hunting for protein, which is practiced globally and where it's done on a sustainable basis, has not been the obvious source of any pandemic. But we need to distinguish local people feeding themselves from extractive hunting and trade or the farming of wildlife, which has was certainly associated with the first SARS pandemic in 2003 and may may be uh, the cause of the second one as well. There are processes ongoing, aren't there? UN processes to try and increase the proportion of the world's population to try and promote the preservation of biodiversity and um, areas under protection. There are UN processes. Um, unfortunately, those processes are not yet adequately addressing the issues of long distance wildlife trade and the farming of wildlife. That's species. what I was going to come to. So w- w- what would you like to see um, happen to accelerate that action? Well, We have very clear uh, guidelines and frameworks produced by the OIE to ensure that we only trade healthy living farm animals. At the moment, at at the regional scale and uh, within countries within South Asia or Asia, we know that thousands of animals are being transported long distances, sometimes over borders, sometimes within countries while still alive. Regulation and commitment to regulation can stop that trade, um, although it it may be politically unpopular in some countries um, and cultural justifications will be used. I think that there are ways of trying to address those those, uh, challenges, but they are nonetheless challenges. And I just wonder as well, I mean, because one of the implications of what you're saying, James, is that you're saying we should be worried about future pandemics hopping from non-humans into humans and the kinds of conditions that you're talking about that are likely to lead to that are more likely to happen outside the UK than inside the UK. So what, what does that mean for the kind of emphasis that Sharon's placed on surveillance? I mean, the UK can carry out its best kind of surveillance and have its preparations in place. But if you're talking about mitigating risk, what does that mean for what the UK should be doing internationally? I think that far more attention needs to be provided to, towards supporting primary health care, which can be, with the technology that now exists, far more easily coupled with almost point of care sequencing of, of pathogens from patients with particular disease um, signs, be they respiratory, nervous signs, or, or, just, or just high temperatures. So I think there is a lot 
around primary health care outside of Europe uh, that can be done to to improve local surveillance of things to provide far greater early warning than than would currently be expected given the way that that the the systems and the resourcing of systems that currently exists. I think we need to look at this as an insurance policy instead of just saying that's a huge cost for us to contribute to someone else's primary health care. I think it's, it's a global insurance policy to start thinking about how we can try and resource those systems. I mean, Sharon, I'd be interested in your view there. I mean, how would you like to see the kind of UK link up its own effort at getting a capacity to test and, and as you say, link data within the UK to manage infection within the UK? How would you like to see that linked up to the kinds of risks James has been talking about? I would start by saying that internationally, there are many countries that still can't sequence SARS-CoV-2. They don't have the experience or the capabilities, funding, etc. So it's important to think about the future. But actually, I'm still quite invested in finding out what's happening in the current pandemic, because I think it's reasonably inevitable that there's going to be another variant of concern arising before this pandemic is over. And if that's going to happen, it's going to happen in populations where there's very high levels of transmission, potentially in areas that haven't been vaccinated, certainly in places where they have very little visibility on the virus in terms of sequencing, which means that that virus could spread quite extensively before we're really aware. And so helping people to adopt SARS-CoV-2 sequencing is important for this pandemic and understanding this pandemic. And for, for myself, I mean, COG UK has developed an arm called COG Train, which is actually funded to develop online courses to help people learn how to do sequencing because it's quite difficult to sequence for the world. We thought that education was a really and and training was a really important place to start. So we do that. And actually, if we get SARS-CoV-2 sequencing right, that infrastructure, that training and knowledge can be used for the next pandemic. And that's the key, really, trying to sort of hard bake that knowledge. And so starting where we are now and actually carrying that forward is really important. But I think what James has said is absolutely right. Taking what we know now, if we could have done anything different, it would have been to have detected those very early cases, evaluated what it was likely to be, and then react and respond and kind of try to stop a global pandemic. And that's what we're really trying to need to aim to do the next time round. And you know, the technology to sequence material is there. It, you ca- can do the sequencing. So you can sequence in, in space, you can sequence in rainforest, you can sequence in the Arctic. So, you know, there's the capability there. You've obviously got to have the will. You've got to have the, the finances and, and, and people to be able to run those machines. But I agree with James when he says that it could be possible to take the latest technology to where, where you think of a pandemic may be emerging and actually get to grips with what's happening very quickly. But there is an issue about, I think, global connectivity. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask, Sharon. I mean, with, with, with any disease that's sort of infectious in the way that we've seen COVID-19, given we are such, you know, so well connected, given that there's so many benefits from being so well connected, is a strategy based on the idea of containing, slowing down, preventing, you know, these infectious diseases becoming pandemic, is, is that really a a plausible strategy? I'd like to think it's a plausible strategy. People do travel very quickly, but if we had good detection systems in place, then detecting them and and locking that down quickly so it doesn't spread to others is possible. So for example, there were cases of Lassa fever in the UK fairly recently. 
they would recognize they were diagnosed and there was a process of actually ensuring that that was very contained so that is possible but when we're talking about co connectivity it's not just about the fact that i can get on a plane and fly around the world you know tomorrow but it's also the connectedness between governments and between provision of surveillance uh, methodologies and approaches and this is where that is so important because rather than having a fragmented system, what we really need is a kind of globalise everywhere. And I think that's where the, the World Health Organisation or WHO really have to come in and be sort of strengthened, both in terms of, you know, the, the people that they have, but also their funding. Because we need a kind of a political will to get the data connected across the world. But when you think about the instruments for do, actually doing that, then one of the key actors here would be the World Health Organization. So we need to get the technologies to where we need to detect pandemics, but then we need to get, it comes back to data connectivity and connecting the dots to say that there's a potential problem. And so the world needs to work together. And I think that over time, we've seen perhaps the, the politics have been such that the world has become more fragmented rather than working as a, as a kind of cohesive whole in the last few years, which makes it difficult to have a concerted action towards a, a new emerging virus. And that all makes complete sense. I mean, it sets out the, the conditions very clearly. Of course, then it leads us to the question of, of, of what should the UK do and, and how should the UK put itself in a position to respond as well as it can, given the world is as it is. Maybe I'll ask you first about this question about borders. I mean, the UK is an island and it's sometimes been pointed out over the course of the two years that or at least according to some people, we haven't always taken full advantage of that fact in, in managing the pandemic. I mean, how do you think the UK should use its kind of islandness in, in future pandemics and, and how to do that wisely and well? Well, what we've seen over the pandemic is a massive difference in how countries have reacted. And so, for example, New Zealand were able to really lock down as a country and close their borders. Australia had a, had a very similar approach Whereas we are an island country, but we're very connected in, within Europe. Now, it wouldn't be for me not being a politician to say the rights and wrongs of the balance between protecting ourselves from disease versus other issues such as trade, the economy, etc. Because as, as, a, as a country, we rely, our economy relies a lot on the passage of people and the passage of trade, trade and so on. But having gone through the pandemic, it would be very wise to look at the way we have used our border controls, the way we've used, for example, quarantine hotels and when and why we've actually triggered border ch border changes so that we're actually prepared and, and can understand what to do next time round. And so I find it difficult to say exactly what the UK should do in its border controls, but I think of a careful analysis of what we've done going going forward so that we we, we have a clear idea about how we might use our border control in future is going to be an important part actually of lessons learned and and no doubt the public inquiry will be very interested in the way that we use travel and borders uh, in this particular pandemic so we can learn for the next one. Very briefly we use the our island nation state very effectively for animal disease control. Moving animals is of course completely different from human mo mobility but the same principles exist for infectious diseases. They don't recognize the difference between a human and an animal in the way that we do. And so in terms of the, you know, the principles of how it can work, it can be amazingly effective, as Sharon's described for, for other countries. It's the political will and the consequences of both negative and positive of doing this that I think need to be very carefully weighed up. 
I mean, this in a way leads us, I mean, a lot of the things we've been talking about are, are lessons that you've got, you know, attentive audiences, James and Sharon, of, for the kinds of lessons you've been talking about, about having the capacity to set up testing, about having the surveillance in place, about thinking about kind of mitigating the risks, re- reducing some of the risks from managing trade in wildlife, etc. But we all know that people's attention shifts at the point we all look forward to where this pandemic fades and becomes less of a daily concern, we know that something else will grab people's attention. So how do we, you know, you've touched on this exactly, both of you, how do we keep the knowledge in the right place? How do we keep the capacity kind of on standby? How do we keep the commitment there, ready to, you know, act when we need to? What's your advice? Um, I might ask Sharon first, but then I know James, from the kind of animal health side, there there are lessons that we could perhaps draw on, but Sharon? Well, One of the ways that we can stay sharp and prepared is through national exercises. So we had a a national exercise back in 2016, Exercise Cygnus, that was to simulate our response to a, a flu outbreak. And being able to do an exercise to see how prepared we are is, is, is a good way of testing whether we are ready. But critical for me is that not only do we do these kind of exercises, but that lessons learnt through the exercises is complete, completely embedded in terms of how we respond to it and ensure that if weaknesses are found, and that's the whole point of it, is, is to cover uncover our strengths and our weaknesses, that our weaknesses are fixed so that uh, if a pandemic was to occur, then we would have that covered. So for me, exercises are a very important way of preparing for the next pandemic to make sure that we have everything ready uh, and ready to go. James, do you have, I mean, that makes complete sense. And I'm sure that will be one of the things that the inquiry will surely explore. How how well have those exercises been embedded in the past and how can we make sure that they're better embedded in the future? But James, what's your advice from from the kind of the veterinary world, how to do this properly? Well, well, to add to what Sharon's just said, following the 2001 foot and mouth disease outbreak, which was for the UK, the animal equivalent of a pandemic, although it was more local local for us, since that time, an annual contingency planning exercise is hardwired in legislation so that the contingency plans have to be reviewed and updated and published. The, the problem is not, I don't think, our contingency planning over the next five years, maybe not even the next 10 years. The problem is that, that when we get further from these disastrous occurrences, memories get shorter, other priorities kick in. And this is where having something hardwired into a system can ensure that, that you do everything you can to, uh, to ensure that, that the priorities that we realise now are not forgotten in a few years' time. In addition to that, these exercises that Sharon has described, which have been carried out, I think, reasonably well in this country, then the lessons from those need to be then responded to um, and not lost. But that all can be hardwired into a system in humans, just as it is into the systems of animal disease and death. Just to wrap up, what for you personally during the last two years has been the the lesson that, that you're most kind of surprised by that you would most want to kind of develop and think further so that in, in the kind of work you're doing, you'd feel you're making a contribution to, to preparing for the next pandemic? 
I think one of the things that's been a, tri a triumph for this pandemic has been the rate of speed of development of new vaccines. Obviously, new treatments have come through through the randomised controlled trial systems that have been set up within the UK as well has been remarkable. But I do think that um, thinking about how you would vaccinate against different classes of pathogen that might become pandemic in the future is something that we can do in relation to preparation. And although I don't think it is at all the only thing that we should be doing in animals, improving surveillance and understanding of infections in different animal populations can help to inform that because many of future pandemic infections will come from different animal species, quite possibly wildlife, because there's such a diversity of different wildlife species that gives far greater opportunity for diverse pathogens to, to live in them. I think that it would be a shame to finish this session or we're thinking about the next pandemic without a mention of the new pandemic, what's well, not that new, the pandemic that's already in a slow burn takeoff. And that's the pan pandemic of antimicrobial or anti antibiotic resistance that is spreading in humans and also in animals associated with our use of antibiotics. And I think that is, that, that is something where we need to think on very different timescales and very different structures needed to address all of the challenges that are coming from that. It's really important to include that in our thinking about the next pandemic. So what surprised me and delighted me actually in many ways is the way that scientists actually really came to the fore in terms of all the discoveries that, that have been made in the UK. So the vaccines, the, the, the treatment trials, the, the sequencing, the, the diagnostics, the surveillance, that effort has been absolutely monumental and has made a big difference to, to the UK pandemic response. And what was really effective was that people, scientists will often work in their own areas of speciality, and that can be quite siloed from other areas of speciality. What happened was that people started to work across pathways. And so you'd have the testing followed by the sequencing of the virus, followed by the virology, the immunology, the structural biology, et cetera. And that all came together really brilliantly. And what I very much hope is that we can actually bring that data together so that we can actually start for the very first time to be bringing together very large data sets of viral genomes with human genomes with very dense and deep data on, on epidemiology and, and the patient and actually make brand new discoveries. And so I've been surprised at how wonderfully effective scientists have been in this country, but I don't think that's over yet because they're now just beginning to get their teeth into bringing all of this data together to make brand new discoveries through machine learning and, and AI methodology, because these are very large data sets. And I think that's really exciting for the future. Well, great. On that note, I'd like to say a big thank you to Sharon and James for joining us. Sharon, thank you so much. You're so welcome. And James. Thank you very much. This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure part of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure you follow and subscribe on your podcast provider. You can also follow CSAP on Twitter. As always, if you have any feedback or ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us, inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Please join us for our next podcast season later this spring, 
when I'll be joined by co-host Professor Emily So to talk about science advice and climate change, reflecting on progress made at COP26 in Glasgow and the need for accelerated action to meet climate change challenges. Thank you to producer Jessica Foster and researcher Nick Kostick, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.